Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning at the Rafik Hariri Center for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council here for the launch of a new report that suggests a new U.S. strategy for Syria. This conflict is now in its fifth year. The death toll is heartbreaking and the devastation hard to fathom. I will be your moderator for this event. My name is Kim Rattas. I'm a BBC correspondent. I've covered the Middle East extensively. I've covered American foreign policy for several years as well. And I know that there have been many, many discussions about what to do on Syria. A lot of them are circular. What should have happened? What could have been done? Where did we go wrong? And so forth. But here we have a report that not only outlines the current state of affairs in Syria, but also tries to put forward some concrete suggestions. And it comes just as rebels in Syria are making key advances. The report is titled, Defeating the Jihadists in Syria, Competition Before Confrontation. In other words, does the focus need to be on defeating the Islamists first, or on empowering the more nationalist rebel groups so they can offer a better, more attractive alternative on the ground? The report is written by Faisal Haitani. He's a resident fellow here at the Atlantic Council's Rafik Hariri Center for the Middle East. Mr. Haitani is a Middle East analyst who focuses on the Levant, including Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. Faisal will outline the key findings of his report, and then I will moderate a conversation between himself and Robert Ford, who is now a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. He's recently retired from the Foreign Service, where he was serving uh, most recently as U.S. Ambassador to Syria from 2010 until 2014. He worked closely with the Syrian opposition and knows these issues and some of the individuals very well. Also joining us is Richard Barrett. He's a senior vice president at the Sufan Group. He's a former British diplomat and intelligence officer who from March 2004 to January 2013 headed the UN monitoring team on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. He's a recognized expert on violent extremism and the measures that can be taken against it. He will bring also very interesting insights into this debate. You have more detailed bios in the event program, but we will start with Faisal's remarks. I will then get Richard and Robert to react to uh, Faisal's remarks, and I will moderate a conversation between the, th the three of them for about half an hour, and then we will take questions from the audience. Faisal, the floor thank, is yours. Thank you, Kim. Uh, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you all for joining us, and thanks to our panelists as well and our moderator. Uh, I'm only going to take uh, a few minutes. Uh, I know everybody says that, but I actually am only going to take a few minutes because I'm not going to paraphrase the report. Uh, rather, what I'll do is try to outline uh, the purpose behind it, the approach uh, I tried to take to addressing the problems of the jihadis in Syria, and the, con the basic conclusions we drew out of, uh, out of the report. Uh, in terms of purpose, uh, I did not try to offer a sort of comprehensive solution to the Syrian civil war. Uh, although, happily, I found that as I asked how we could address the jihadi problem, there was quite a bit of overlap between how we can do that and what we can do for Syria's long-term future. It also was not meant as a sort of outright rejection of everything the United States has done in Syria. I believe there have been some good things, and at the very least, sort of a kernel of some better things that can be done inside, uh, inside the country. So not everything here is new, uh, but rather it's a sort of uh, an attempt to propose an adjustment 
an adjustment to what we were already doing to scale it up to change its nature a bit, change its objectives, and stop doing some of the more harmful things that I believe we've done. So looking at it through, uh, through that lens, uh, it was not an uh, attempt to actually read the high politics of the region either. I think that's something many people have done very well uh, and continue to do so. And I also wanted very much to bring a local emphasis into, uh, into the, the problem-solving aspect of the report, because uh, I think that's uh, a bit undercovered. I also didn't try to dissect ISIS. Uh, I think that has also been done uh, by, uh, by many scholars, and for that matter, by the Sufayan group. Uh, I uh, wanted to focus a bit more on Jabhat al-Nusra as well, because I think maybe in the long term that might actually be not only a longer-term problem, but maybe a bit trickier of a problem to solve. As, uh, as we think about Syria's future. So instead, what I tried to do is link US actions and behavior to local realities lived by the population and the insurgency in Syria, and sort of compare and contrast our own priorities with the priorities of, of the Syrians who are ultimately going to decide what happens to their country. And uh, through that lens, despite the promise of train and equip, and uh, the limited gains we've made against ISIS, the attrition we've imposed on them, the damage to their hydrocarbons infrastructure. Despite all that, uh, I still don't think we have it quite right against ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra because our policy priorities, frankly, don't align with the priorities of the actors who are most likely to offer a longer-term answer to the problem of, of uh, the jihadis in Syria. I don't think that's the regime, and I think in recent days, uh, we can all agree that there's been less and less evidence that, uh, that the regime is a viable long-term answer to that problem. Instead, I think uh, the answer actually lies with the country's nationalist opposition. Uh, and I didn't use the word moderate on purpose. I hate that word, and uh, it always, it's very easy to attack and pick apart. Uh, but I think nationalist opposition is critical largely because it draws its support base from the Sunni population in the country. Every problem thrown at the Sunni jihadist problem that is going to be led by non-Sunnis is ultimately going to keep on reinforcing a narrative that Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS has exploited very well. So whereas, of course, everybody needs to be involved in this problem, if the Sunni population is not brought on board en masse, honestly, the problem will grow and not be, and not be solved. As long as we're not strengthening the national the nationalist groups as an insurgency, not just to fight the jihadis, but as a, as a capable insurgency. I think paradoxically, if we focus only on the jihadi, the jihadi problem without doing that, we actually make it impossible to achieve our main goal of going after ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra. There's a bit of a paradox there, and it's certainly still at play. Instead, what I've offered is an idea of advocating and enabling insurgent competition before pushing for a confrontation against Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS for a number of reasons, partly because I believe that, uh, again, the local actors care more about that insurgent problem than they do about the jihadi one, at least for now. And secondly, because, frankly, I find it illogical that we would push groups unable to, unable to confront, frankly, ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra into a confrontation they can't win and thereby lose our only basic tool against them. I think this is ultimately what we need to do in Syria, but I think there are a series of steps before that that we insist on skipping. We insist on pushing groups that can't take on three, four, five rivals at once into doing so, 
And then we get disappointed with the results, understandably. But what this does is push us into this vicious cycle whereby we pressure these groups to do our bidding and share our priorities. When they don't do it, we withdraw our support, we criticize them, and then when that happens, obviously, they're even less capable of working with us in a useful manner, and so on and so forth. So again, our priority is to make the nationalist forces competitive. And I say that even if the short-term focus and priority of ours is not overthrowing Assad, that's really neither here nor there. I mean, uh, obviously, there are groups in Syria that would have that happen. And probably in our, in, under certain circumstances, it's in our long-term interest. But at the moment, I can understand why the United States would be obsessively focused with something before. That doesn't mean that we don't have common ground with, uh, with potential local allies. So how can this be done, the million dollar question? In many ways, I don't believe I've covered them all, nor, nor do I believe everything I've proposed is a complete solution. And that's why you would want to read the report. Uh, but uh, I think uh, at the sort of high level, it needs to start with an assertive US diplomatic leadership over what is essentially a very complex proxy war effort. And that's what it is. It's a dirty word, but we, but we need to call it what it is. The, there are a variety of regional actors that are already doing this in our place. Some would argue that that's a good thing. Others would argue that that's highly problematic. My own argument is that in the absence of a US leadership, it's problematic. That's all, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, and we need to be very vocal in our conversations with local actors, both well, wherever they are in Syria, as long as they meet certain broad criteria. We need, to become, we need to be very frank about what we expect from them, and we need to meet them halfway in terms of what their own priorities are at the local level. And I think we also need to stop making damaging public statements about the very same groups that we hope, we hope to, uh, to uh, help, not only because it's kind of distasteful, but I think most importantly, it kind of makes, it kind of makes them look ridiculous. Uh, it makes them look ridiculous inside the country, and uh, it emboldens those actors within the country, including and perhaps especially the jihadi actors, who would much sooner actually attack them rather than wait around for the United States to do something to make them a bit stronger. Now, operationally, what does it mean? Uh, and again, here, I, the report goes into actually far more detail. And it's a lot of detail. But operationally, I think it can start by building on some of the successes we've had in southern Syria. There, we've had a covert problem, rather small scale, that has led to some insurgent coherence, as well as some limited victories and progress, without fragmenting into a very radicalized Islamist landscape. Uh, and without severe infighting. Now, it has its problems. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a panacea, and all of you are aware with the details know, but Nusra still operates in the south, but ISIS doesn't. And nevertheless, I think there's some coherence and some logic to, this, to the strategy at play. And that strategy means streamlining financing and weapons flows to particular vetted groups, direct outreach to vetted commanders, offering competitive salaries to commanders as well as the fighters to stop them from defecting to Jabhat al-Nusra, which pays, by most estimates, about four or five times as much as an FSA brigade in southern, in southern Syria does. And yes, it does mean provision of weapons, although this is not the main issue. Uh, but I think an anti-aircraft capability along the lines of an anti-aircraft artillery capacity in particular, which is less prone to proliferation, but, need, but groups need to be trained how to use them properly. I think that's important. Uh, as for the airstrikes themselves, I think nobody expects airstrikes against ISIS uh, to stop, nor should they. Uh, I do think that uh, we could do a potentially better job of 
coordinating with local actors on the ground in terms of intelligence, logistics, coordinates. And I also think that we could do far better at targeting these airstrikes uh, against front lines between the insurgency and ISIS. And I'll stop there. And okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Faisal, I'm actually going to pick up where where you left off with my first question to uh, to Richard. If I could get you first to react to some of what you just heard and and tell us whether the fact that the administration, ha as Faisal points out in his report, has had a tendency to um, stay away from targeting ISIS on the front where it is on the front lines with the other rebel groups and mostly targets them um, you know in, in in areas outside of those uh, of that fighting ground um, it appears that the administration's policy is mostly about containing ISIS just the way at the beginning it was about containing the conflict within the borders of Syria do these suggestions does Faisal's report do you think this will strike accord with the administration? Is this something that they can take, take home and, and, and expand on? Well, certainly, yes. I think it's a very useful report. And I, I think that um, you, know, you hit one of the key problems for the administration on the head there, and that all the strikes against uh, ISIS, uh, indeed, uh, over the last couple of days, they've been, I think, 23 or so. You know, but they're taking out machine guns and things like that, you know, people on motorbikes and you know, this is not a, a, a very effective use of, of American military force, and it's also a very expensive one. And it is a, a policy of containment, uh, while I think waiting to see what other developments uh, may occur, you know, to provide more opportunity. But here I think uh, we come to the issue of where American interests lie in the region. And certainly one of the key inter American interests is to contain the Islamic State to stop its expansion, to prevent it uh, affecting the security of countries beyond Iraq, Syria. Um, but the interests are much broader than that, of course. Stability in the region is a key interest. I mean, Israel is obviously an interest. Um, but so, too, are American relations with Turkey, American relations with Iran, American relations with Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states. And, and, and therefore, there's a whole complexity of interests which have to be served in some way. And until now, I think the American tendency has been to try to divide policy in Iraq from policy in Syria. Well, that's not, it's not how the Islamic State sees it, and I don't think it's how many countries in the region see it either. It's extremely difficult to do that. And of course, as Faisal points out very effectively in his report, um, trying to deal with Islamic State and other threats in Syria without addressing the Assad problem is, is, really, is, is just not, po not possible. And I think that, therefore, I would see it as now um, the policy perhaps should be more to look at how uh, Jabhat al-Nusra particularly is managing to be so effective in Syria and taking an example from them in saying, okay, well, just as Jabhat al-Nusra can um, influence and, and corral other nationalist groups in a pragmatic alliance, then so too perhaps can the United States, and it's very interesting what Faisal points out in his report about the military operations command in Jordan, how successful that's been in the south. Why has there not been equal success in other parts of, of Syria? And therefore, the um, American, of course, American projection of power can be military, 
in, a, in a military way, which is, is a key projection, but there also has to be the diplomatic projection of power as, as well. And the diplomatic projection of power, I think, should be much more in saying to Turkey and Saudi Arabia, okay, guys, you seem now to be doing something with the rebels which has made them more effective in the north, but what is your long-term plan? What is the day after? What happens once Assad goes? Because he's, he's on the back foot at the moment, at least. Um, and if by forcing Turkey, Saudi Arabia to um, focus on that, on the importance of a longer-term plan, then America can, of course, influence that in a much more effective and diplomatic way because the might can be held in reserve a little bit more. And then I think, personally, and I know it's an unpopular uh, position in the United States, but at that point, you have to bring in Iran because Iran has vital strategic interests, which it makes clear over and over again about its need for a link through to Lebanon and Hezbollah. And therefore, I, I'm sure Iran is not wedded to Assad staying in power, but it is wedded to maintaining some sort of influence and balance in the country. And then by bringing in Iran, perhaps on the back of the nuclear talks, there could be the possibility of restoring stability to the region and dealing with this a huge, huge humanitarian problem, which should not be underestimated as a cause of instability for many, many years to come. All right, that's a great tour d'horizon. We'll come back to uh, drill deeper into some of those uh, regional aspects of, of the conflict as well. But I want to get Robert's um, reaction to this report. Is this something that the administration should be considering on a local um, <coughs> level? And um, I want to ask you, as somebody who, who dealt um, with, the, with the Syrian opposition uh, when you were at the State Department, you know, in 2012, uh, there were many reports about the rebels being furious, about the U.S. being so focused on asking them to focus their attention on fighting Islamists, on fighting al-Qaeda. Now we have a report saying instead of focusing on, on that, you should have ways of empowering um, those more nationalist rebels. Do you think it was a mistake in hindsight to ask the rebels, as, as they uh, seem to describe, that they should focus their efforts on fighting the more Islamist groups within, within the opposition? Thanks, Kim. Um, and Frank, thank you for the invitation uh, to be here today. And Faisal Mabruk, congratulations on a nice report. Um, Kim, in answer to your question, I, I have to correct the record. Very um, good. Since I, like was, since I was intimately involved in this issue of getting Nusra on a terrorism list, we never asked the Syrian opposition when we put them on the terrorism list, uh, the Jabhat al-Nusra on the terrorism list in December 2012, we never asked them to take up arms against uh, the Nusra Front, and we certainly didn't ask them to fight Islamists since so many of them already were Islamists. Um, what we did say is don't work with them and stop welcoming foreign jihadis into the civil war in Syria. We told them that that was going to work against them in the medium and long term. And I think now um, many in the Syrian political as well as armed opposition um, have come around to that point of view. Sheikh Muaz al-Khatib uh, who's a prominent figure in the political opposition, was just here in Washington maybe five weeks ago and um, very clearly denounced the Nusra Front. He did not denounce the young Syrians who have joined it, and I think we need to talk about that, and, and Faisal's uh, recommendations touch on, on how to manage that 
particular aspect of the problem, the recruitment. Um, and I think it's also important, I don't, I don't know if this has gotten much notice in Washington. I was in Jordan last week and met with some people from the Southern Front, which is a collection of armed groups fighting uh, in southern Syria. And I also met people from the First Army, which is another collection of armed groups. Uh, the First Army is actually a component element of the much larger Southern Front. I, I see Tyler Thompson there. I hope I got that right, Tyler. That's what they told me. So, um, and many of the groups in the First Army, um, and this is on the internet, I would urge people to look this up, many of the elements, the component elements of the First Army actually issued a very vigorous denunciation of the Nusra Front about 10 days ago, maybe even less, maybe eight days ago. And I asked them why. And they said that it was becoming increasingly difficult. These are the group, and I don't think this was necessarily done with American encouragement. They certainly didn't indicate that to me. But they said it was increasingly difficult to coordinate with Nusra on the ground because A, uh, the Nusra Front um, had a tendency to go off and act on its own um, and try to promote itself at the expense of other groups. Uh, and second, and this I think tells a lot about Syrian culture, perhaps especially in southern Syria, there was a well-publicized incident in southern Syria where Jebba Nusra arrested a, a man and a woman and publicly beat the woman um, in a small town in southern Syria. This would be about a month ago. And this created um, quite an uproar against the Nusra Front among people in southern Syria. And we have noticed, and in fact, I think um, I put something on the internet myself um, through Juan Cole's website. Uh, we've seen street reactions against the Nusra Front in central and northern Syria as well. And so when Faisal says we need to empower nationalists, or I often call them moderates, we can argue about the terms, but uh, the label, uh, I think number one, there's material with which to work. Uh, number two, um, it is going to require that we talk to some Islamists just by necessity, but I think we need to do that in any case as part of our drive to get to an eventual political negotiation. And number three, and I think uh, Faisal just touched on this, as we think about how to confront extremists and Islamist extremists in Syria, the Assad government, or trying to work with the Assad government against them is exactly the wrong tactic. Exactly, it's 180 degrees the wrong tactic. It will play into a broader Sunni narrative, which is that the Americans are linking up with Iran and, and others to oppress Sunnis, which is a narrative that the Islamic State has, has really used to its advantage in places like Iraq and Syria. Um, and it's, it's simply ineffective because the Assad regime has a variety of problems, not the least of which is manpower. And if Bashar al-Assad can't retake the close-in suburbs of Jobar, and uh, Muadamiya, he sure as heck isn't going to be able to take on the Islamic State hundreds of miles away in Raqqa or Deir Zor. So Faisal's recommendation that we work with moderates on the ground is, in fact, the only option. And so the sooner we get on with it in a bigger way, uh, what we have done over the last couple of years is, is simply not enough. Um, and then we, we decry failure because we haven't provided enough assistance and we tend to blame the opposition rather than looking at the scale of the program and what we're suggesting.
So thank you, Kim. Faisal, I want to read a, one sentence from your report, and I want to ask you to expand a little bit on this idea of the competition versus confrontation. You write, rather than push nationalist insurgents to confront American enemies and ignore their own against unrealistic odds, the United States would benefit more from helping the nationalists compete with the Nusra Front for control of the insurgency and popular support, contain ISIS, and build capacity for an eventual offensive against the jihadists. How do you convince those as you call them, nationalist insurgents, that this is the way for them uh, also when they're still very focused on trying to mostly <coughs> fight, uh, well, uh, when they're also very focused on fighting um, the Assad forces. How do those two come together? Can you expand a little bit on how this would work on the ground? I think, uh, I think it would only make sense. I, I, think, I think they're not going to do anything that doesn't make sense for them, mm -hmm. just like any human being. Uh, they would only take these guys. I, 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 I'm not saying that they have any love for them. Absolutely not. Nor do I. Nor am I saying that they should co coordinate with them in the meantime. Uh, what I'm saying, and there will be some clashes, as there is, and that's part of the competitive, the competitive dynamic. Not by, by confrontation, I meant go after them and make this your priority to destroy these guys. Uh, I don't believe they'll need a great deal of convincing to go after Jabhat al-Nusra in the context of them being confident, powerful, and having been able to address most of the regime problem. I don't see why, frankly, other than this, this sort of tactical, convenient, pragmatic approach to working with various groups you and I would think are distasteful, to an extent, some people who do that will internalize some of these extreme values. But I've seen how easily insurgent groups shift either way, how easily they reshuffle, how easily new coalitions come up and old ones are disbanded. And I still believe the calculus is pragmatic. I don't think they will need plenty of convincing if it makes sense for them and if it's in their interest. Won't need convincing at all. They just need capability, but I think that we will already have taken care of that in the process of boosting their standing within the insurgency itself. And how, I mean, I, and please do Richard and Robert uh, step in. How does, how does the administration uh, reconcile its short-term goal of containing ISIS and not um, uh, shifting the focus to Assad when, when the U.S. is not ready to consider that to the more long-term goal of you know, what is also in, in America's national security interest of not letting this problem of uh, radical groups fester um, in Syria? How do you bring those two together? Richard? Yeah, I think it's, a, of course, a very difficult question. If, if the administration knew the answer, I'm sure they would act on it. But um, I think one of the key things is, what are the distinctions between Jabhat al-Nusra and the Islamic State? You know, uh, philosophically, ideologically, they seem to be almost identical. Though clearly, in the short term, their, their tactics and, indeed, their disagreements over leadership drive them apart. Um, what is a long-term projection of their you know, uh, trajectory, whether it's, it, it's towards each other or away from each other, I think depends very much on how things do play out in Syria. You know, what is Syria now? How much of Syria will remain what we remember of Syria when we were looking at maps and school books, you know, when, when, when we were children? Um, is Syria, like Iraq, likely to break up in some way? And that will, of course, affect the, the future of Jabhat al-Nusra and the future of the Islamic 
state as well. The Islamic State, of course, famously doesn't recognize borders. It's not something into a sort of territorial distinction in the way that, that most modern states operate. Um, so I think that if the administration says, okay, what bits of the Islamic State are we really opposed to? Are they the bits that um, are fighting Abadi in, in Iraq? Are they the bits that uh, try to uh, counter Shia influence locally? Are they the bits that encourage people in other countries, particularly Western countries, to launch attacks? You know, can we disaggregate in some way the threat from the Islamic State? I think that needs to be done. And having done that, say also, therefore, can we disaggregate the threat that we see from Nusra? And where do those things overlap? And they probably overlap, you know, uh, like the attacks we've seen by the uh, coalition against the Khorasan group, you know, in that little bit that is clearly the same, you know, the same threat to the United States of, of attack planning overseas. And as Robert mentioned, you know, the, the whole business of foreign fighter flows, you know, foreign fighters going to Iraq, Syria to fight there and die there or operate in hospitals or whatever, that's one thing. But foreign fighters who are going over there becoming radicalized, traumatized or whatever, coming back and causing problems is another issue. So I think that <clears throat> the administration could do a lot worse than articulating more clearly where it sees the conjunction of the threats from Jabhat al-Nusra and Islamic State and explaining how policy is directed against that conjunction. Robert, do you want to react to that? And do, yeah. do you want to also tell us a little bit about the differences between the North and, and the South, which, sure. which Faisal touches upon? Yeah. There's, there's, the South seems to be, what hap what's happening in the South seems to be very much underreported. It has been underreported for, uh, for, for some time, I think. Well, you are a member of the media, Kim, so I'm not going to say anything about well, the media. Well, I have actually written about but, it. Uh, so, but let me, <laughs> I do my let best. me answer. I thought you asked a great question about that. How do you transition um, so that you can face both the extremists and the broader regional security stability problem that Richard was talking about? And I think this is where um, Washington is in bad, bad need of a strategy. Um, and I, I have said, and I still think, that the strategy actually is that in order to deal with the extremist problem in Syria and to deal with the stability problem, there needs to be a new government in Syria, very much like there was a new government in Iraq to replace Nouri al-Maliki. Um, and how did the Iraqis get to that? They negotiated with each other. Now, the Iraqis did it through an institution, the Iraqi parliament, with lots of side discussions. Um, but the Iraqis negotiated it out amongst themselves. And I think the Americans have said we need a political negotiation among Syrians. I think everybody agrees on that. Um, the but problem is that the administration there. has no tactics to get there. So that they just float this, this line out as a sort of a strategy, but it doesn't have tactics to back it up. And we did have tactics in Iraq, but we don't have tactics in Syria. And so what are the tactics that you need in Syria to make this happen? To, develop this government, a unity government, that would in turn be able to contain and degrade the extremist threat in Syria. Well, the tactics have to include more pressure on Assad because it was Assad who would not negotiate in Geneva uh, in January and February of 2014. Um, we will have to put more pressure on the extremist elements. The bombing against the Islamic State is obviously a part of that. Shouldn't be limited to bombing. Um, there's all kinds of things we need to be talking to the Turks about the, the border. Um, we need to be looking at the financial mechanisms, et cetera. But there needs to be more pressure on the extremists as well. 
as Faisal has noted, we need to help the moderates. And one of the tactics of helping the moderates has to be more material support. How many times, how many times have I heard Syrian armed opposition commanders tell me, Islamic State pays four or five times the salary we can pay. These young Syrians have to support their families. Their families have been displaced. Their families are in desperate need of money. They go where the money is because they have to help their families. It's not about ideology. It's about family. Um, same thing with material support in terms of whether it be ammunition or food or whatever it is. Um, I, I just cannot express how many times I have heard people in the armed opposition tell me that the recruitment on, the, on behalf of the extremists is helped because they have superior material resources. So we need to help them compete. Um, this is really a competition. Um, and then finally, as part of the tactics, in order to get to the strategy of a negotiation and get a new unity government, the moderates, nationalists, whatever you want to call them, um, they need to reach out to elements of the regime and say the choice in Syria is not Nusra, Islamic State, or Assad. There is a third choice. We represent that third choice. And they need to make that message really clear. I have to say, they have not done so. Not in a way that even I can see very convincingly. So um, that's a nice quid pro quo. If we're going to provide more help to them, both diplomatically as well as material, then we want to see more outreach. Um, it is not an accident that the opposition delegation to Geneva 14 months ago did not have one Alawi out of a 30-man delegation. That's not good outreach. So, but strategy and tactics both. That's how you get to the transition, as you talk about. I'm happy to talk about the southern, northern front if you want. Sure. I, want I think to... Richard, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on that later. I think Richard wanted to step in. And I, I just want wanted to, to comment on, a, on well. a couple of things that Robert said. I think that uh, so far as paying for people to join these groups is concerned, money is attraction, an attraction certainly, but it's not a glue. It doesn't hold those groups mm -hmm. together. And what has been so uh, powerful, I think, about the Nusra and other nationalist groups, Aral Sham, you know, some of the more Islamist nationalist groups, has been that they've provided a glue, that they have a vision, they have a, they have a consistency, which has been very attractive to, to fighters, and also, of course, a, a strength. So I'm not sure money is the sole answer. And I think also, um, as the fighting goes on, the choices that people have of finding this way between all the other shoals is limited by, by the violence, by the memories of violence, by the sectarianism and so on that carries on. And this is a very, very deliberate policy by some of the groups, you know, to make sure that there is no way back and that, that for, for the groups that are with you and that there is no middle way for the groups that, that are against you. And that's been very, very effective and hard uh, increasingly for outside interveners to, to, to help sort of dissipate that sort of um, uh, tendency. And if you look at, I mean, what would lead to a Geneva 3? I think it's really difficult to see that. Moscow talks, waste of time, stuff in Demistura. Well, you know, one commends his efforts, but frankly, not really going anywhere. So how do you bring these people all together in a process, particularly when the internal and external opposition are so divided and so disconnected with one another? So I think that the 
the negotiation is going to be largely on the battlefield. You know, so it's getting the main external players, um, the regime but not Assad, the, the rebel groups that are fighting there and effective there, and then Jordan, Turkey, Saudi, Iran, uh, together with the United States, United sort of a States two a, level, yeah. a two level, and, and two United States has process. a real, real power there. You know, has a, a military authority, a diplomatic authority, and a global authority, which is really important in being able to bring the international community together in the Security Council, which has not been achieved yet at all. Uh, but maybe, you know, I mean, I don't say that the Russians are necessarily dug into a position here. You know, so I think that needs much more exploration, personally. I can want can, to, can yeah. I just add one sentence to what, what both, both Robert and Richard were saying? Uh, I mentioned uh, an overlap between uh, tackling the jihadi problem and the Syrian problem at large. The emergence of a viable third choice able to make, in a meaningful way, in an incredible way, an outreach to the regime and offer them a, a third solution, that's exactly what I was talking about. Exactly. I was just about to read. That okay. sentence from, from your report, which sums it up quite, quite nicely, that by enabling nationalists to com compete effectively uh, with the Nusra Front, you help the insurgents improve their military position, their popular standing, and appeal to disillusioned fighters who would otherwise join the Nusra Front. And by doing so, you create that third force on the ground, some of which we are perhaps already seeing to some extent in the south, where you write also that they're more effective also at coordinating with the civilian population, with the local uh, committees. And in your conclusion, you write that the current US-led coalition campaign in Syria cannot destroy ISIS without effective, legitimate Syrian ground forces. And is that your conclusion, that there needs to be empowerment of those groups, which then become the de facto uh, third force on the ground, and that will help defeat both ISIS and, at the same time, bring the Assad government to the table. Absolutely, I, uh, and I think this disappearance of the middle ground uh, is probably, I mean, it's such an inevitable part of sectarian conflict and, and so easy to do and so easy to, to instigate and accelerate. Uh, but uh, in the absence of that, there's, there's no solution to either of these problems, really. N neither the Nusra-ISIS problem, because obviously they are a direct outgrowth, not only of circumstances, but of specifically this strategy of sectarian polarization. And on the other hand, no solution to the regime because those groups capable enough, just the Shihadi ones, of being able to negotiate meaningfully anyway have no intention of doing it. And uh, the others who would have some sort of appetite or acceptance for it can't or can nominally, but it doesn't matter what they say because the regime very clearly, and, and they've even said as much, is all these guys you're throwing at us in the opposition, they don't, they don't control anything. So, and, the, and sometimes they're right. So, uh, I have one more follow-up question for all three of you, if you can ask them very briefly, and then we're going to go to questions from the audience. Very briefly, do you think any of this that we've discussed here, uh, empowering the more moderate rebels, the nationalist rebels, making them an alternative uh, on the ground, does any of this work without some kind of no-fly zone or safe zone. Faisal? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about no-fly zone, but uh, zone. I, I would say air exclusion zone or some sort of anti-aircraft capability. Robert? The strategy would work much better with a no-fly zone, and it would be much faster. And there is a lot to be said at this point for moving the crisis in Syria, the conflict in Syria, to a resolution faster rather than delay it. Richard? So, 
yeah, no-fly zone safe zone or just uh, uh, getting the train and equip program online faster? No, I think that, that not only has to be, but will be. And it may not be one that is uh, involving the United States actively, but it will involve Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Yes. I think there's, there's a lot of room Fair here enough. for a regional discussion. I've just come back from Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis are certainly thinking a lot about Syria as they watch how their operation unfolds in Yemen. Uh, we're ready for questions. If you could uh, raise your hand. I think there are uh, microphones. Uh, wait for the microphone to come to you, and please introduce yourself. And if you could keep the questions uh, brief so we can give uh, as many people the opportunity to speak. Uh, Tyler, why don't you go first? Thanks, everyone. I'm Tyler Thompson from United for a Free Syria and the Coalition for Democratic Syria. My question is just, uh, and thank you very much for your report. It's, it's great. Really happy. Um, what components of the existing U.S. train and equip program and other uh, rebel support programs um, have served to achieve some of the goals, Faisal, that you outlined in your, in your piece? And also, what ways have they uh, taken us down the wrong road away from achieving those goals? Thanks. Richard or, uh, sorry, uh, Robert or, or Faisal, who wants to take this question? The gentleman Robert wrote the do. report. So. <laughs> uh, look, you know, there's so much that annoys me and disappoints me about, uh, about what we have and haven't done in Syria. So I'm only going to focus on the few pinpricks of light, you know. Uh, at least there is light. <laughs> at least there is light. Uh, they, some of the things on a much a very insufficient scale that have been done in the South, I outlined already. Uh, they're certainly scalable. I just don't think, frankly, I think it's a question of appetite. I think we don't want to do it. Uh, not, that it's, uh, not that it's not doable. Uh, train and equip, uh, you know, this gets ridiculed a lot. Uh, I, I think, you know, look, it, it best, best case scenario, if we train uh, 15,000 people bristling with arms and well, well supplied and well motivated and disciplined and well trained and throw them into Syria, good. I mean, that uh, you've just put 15,000 of the best fighters in the country on the ground. Uh, Hezbollah did a lot with less. But uh, I just, I'm scared that's not going to happen quickly enough. And I wonder about the mandate they're going to be given. That's it. That's my main concern. There's a question uh, in the middle there, a uh, gentleman with a gray tie. If you could introduce yourself. Thank you very much. My name is Edward Joseph with the Institute of Current World Affairs and Johns Hopkins Sice. Faisal, Bob, very nice to see you again. Congratulations on the report. Here's my question. Um, the, you make such a logical, compelling case uh, for a strategy, I think, Ambassador Ford put it that the only option is to back, he termed the, the moderate opposition, you call the nationalist opposition. And you both make a very compelling, logical case for this. And my question then is, why don't we do it? Um, Kim and Richard alluded to one answer, which is the preoccupation, understandable, the preoccupation with ISIS and Nusra, and that's one. But there are two other possibilities that I can think of. And one is uh, the, that we simply don't tr still don't trust the opposition, vetted or, or not as, as they are. And of course, the other is the talks with Iran, the, the nuclear talks, and that we're simply afraid that to pursue this strategy against Assad uh, would upset those talks. And 
So that's my question for you all. Principally, of course, Ambassador Ford might have insight in this, but perhaps all three of you. Thank you very much. Robert, could we get you to, to, to answer that? Because I, I've, to, just to echo that question, I've, all, I've often heard from um, uh, rebel leaders on the ground saying, you know, we, we get just enough weapons to remain operational and viable on the ground, but not enough to push towards um, Damascus. So what, you know, what, what, is, what is going on exactly in, in the minds of, of, of your colleagues in the administration? Well, first of all, it should be abundantly clear that uh, the Americans never understand the situation on the ground in a place like Syria well enough to be able to micro-tune the amount of um, material assistance we provide to an armed group to keep them just exactly in a certain spot of stalemate, not too hot and not too cold. I mean, that we just don't have that, we don't have that level of understanding. So I love the conspiracy theories from the Middle East. I sort of miss them when I come to Washington. But um, so, I, um, Eddie, in answer to your question, I, I don't think it has much to do with Iranian nuclear. I, in my experience, and I've been out of government for more than a year, but in my experience, there was a very uh, firm wall iron concrete wall between the nuclear and what we were doing in Syria. Um, and so then it's back to the issue of the Syrian opposition itself and the armed opposition. And here I think um, many people in this room will recall that President Obama himself has uh, disparaged uh, the quality of the armed opposition. Um, he has also said that he doesn't think that the United States uh, working with Syrian opposition can resolve the Syrian conflict. He has real doubts about that. And I would add that I think there is a concern that were the United States to increase assistance in conjunction with regional allies to the Syrian opposition, that Russia and or Iran would escalate in return. Um, I think certainly that counter-escalation is an issue to consider. Um, and I think as part of a strategy of increasing pressure on the regime and increasing help to the moderate or nationalist opposition, I think we have to look at their capabilities to escalate. But unlike Iraq, Iran does not have a ground border, a land border with Syria. And so its ability to increase material support is definitely harder. Um, and their ability to even work with Hezbollah has to be tempered carefully. The Israeli airstrikes over the weekend are a reminder of that. And so, and the point after all is not to topple the regime, if I understand mm -hmm. what the administration still wants. The point is to compel the regime to go to a negotiating table. So, Faisal, do, do you want to add, do you want to add anything to this? No, not really. Uh, I, I don't have enough access or experience at that level of government, so uh, I, I, I would trust Ambassador Ford's uh, judgment. Uh, I think my, my, my intention is, uh, or the intention of really all the work I do in Syria isn't to convince someone who doesn't want to do something to do it. It's probably impossible. Uh, but rather to draw a link over things we've identified as important interests and what is going on on the ground and how it can be done better. Uh, this is why I didn't write a report about overthrowing the Assad regime, because I know there's no appetite for it, and if it happens today, it may not necessarily be a great idea. Uh, so something a little, well, I don't want to say less ambitious, because it's difficult, 
a little more limited in focus and scope mm -hmm. is, uh, is what I had in mind. And as a result, uh, I, I think it's possible that, that it could be at least seriously considered, yeah. We have a question mm -hmm. here in the front, please. Mohammed Shinao from The Voice of America. Uh, Faisal, even if the uh, train and equip program succeeded in bringing about 15,000 fighters into Syria, whom should they fight? Al-Nusra, ISIS, or the regime? And for Mr. Ambassador, you argued lately that you are seeing uh, the beginning of the end for the Assad regime. How would that impact the expansion of uh, ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra if it happened? Thank you. Let's get the easy questions, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they should at the least be able to fight the regime, and I think ISIS as well. I mean, uh, I, don't think, I don't think they have a choice when it comes to ISIS anyway, because anywhere they're gonna be thrown in near proximity to them or within their territory, they're going to get attacked. Uh, so it's sort of like the regime. Uh, with Nusra, it's a bit more complicated. Uh, I certainly would like nothing more than for them to destroy Nusra. Uh, but uh, the question for me is if they pick that fight along with the other two, what will happen to them? So there's a question to be asked also about, is it right to define their mission in terms of, frankly, just purely in terms of who they're going to go and fight? Or rather, do they have territorial objectives? Are they supposed to hold certain terrain? Are they supposed to govern it? That might be a more logical way than telegraphing to every actor on the field that these guys are out to get you. Robert? Um, Mohammed, very briefly, in answer to your question, uh, I do think the regime is weakening. I think the regime is tiring uh, for a variety of reasons I won't go into here. What that means in terms of the influence and power of the Islamic State on the ground is in some places it'll help in the short term. Uh, I would expect the Islamic State probably will be attacking uh, regime positions in west central Syria around Hama and Homs. There are already signs that it's starting to do that. And, and as the regime weakens, it'll be able to make some relatively fast gains there because the regime won't be able to fight them off. But I have seen an analysis um, given in front of the American Congress in the last month, which said that the administration was concerned that if the regime suddenly fell, then the Islamic State or other extremists might take power in Damascus. And I find that kind of analysis very simplistic and wrong. And I think the easiest way to, to refute it is to look at what happened in the Yarmouk district of Damascus, where the Islamic State did enter an area, and it almost immediately triggered antibodies. The antibodies included regime elements, and I don't think the regime is gonna stop fighting even if Bashar al-Assad isn't there um, because they're nervous about their survival, not unreasonably. Um, and so they fought back, and elements of the Syrian armed opposition also fought against the Islamic State and actually pushed them back out of parts of the Yarmouk neighborhood. And so, although the regime is weakening, it certainly doesn't mean in any way that the Islamic State is coming closer to taking over Syria. I'm gonna to go to another question, but Richard, I wanted to, to draw you into this conversation. It was, I think you want to react to this, but also could you, could you tell us, you know, when 
and the long-term considerations for Syria, the longer ISIS holds on to territory, how does it change the, the, the social fabric? What, what are the long-term concerns of ISIS's hold on that territory? Well, I think that the, the longer ISIS holds territory, um, in, in, in a way, the more it's able to sort of infiltrate the uh, organs of state, if you like. You know, I mean, it's now issuing license plates for, for motorbikes, you know, and identity cards and all this sort of thing. And very much on the Ba'athist model is ensuring that it has a finger in every part of, of government. So the more it does that, of course, the harder it is to uproot it, because one of the reasons that ISIS has been able to establish itself is the lack of anything. I mean, it wasn't replacing anything. There was just nothing there. There was bad governance, and so they were able to provide stability and corruption to a certain extent and all those sorts of things which have been a very common complaint of the people. So until there's something better to take its place, I think people will say, well, we may not like it, but at least we know where we are. Uh, just coming back to this very interesting question about um, who would the uh, American-funded, American-supported troops fight. I think it's really important. And, and I think one issue which we haven't addressed is what is a legal basis for the United States support action against a, a recognized regime? You know, they, there is none. Mm -hmm. And that is really important. You know, if we complain about the Russians supporting insurgents in Ukraine or whatever, why would we think we should do the same in Syria just because we think it's more uh, of a moral issue or, or whatever? And I think that we, we must be aware of that need for proper U United Nations backing for any action against the regime or a negotiated settlement. And also, the f if you have 15,000 well-armed troops, and I very much doubt it'll come to that, but if you do, what will be the reaction by Hezbollah, by Iran, by Shia militia in Iraq or other Shia militia which have been formed and were very much more evident last year perhaps than they are this, but nonetheless perhaps could come back into um, Syria. So. You know, you're introducing another element, just makes it more confused, more messy, without this strategic objective. It's not moving towards anything that people can identify with and, and, and get behind. So I think it's, I'm much more sympathetic, I think, to the administration's difficulty in finding a strategy and a way forward than perhaps the two colleagues on the panel are. We have a question uh, in the middle, please. Uh. Hello, Sharon Bogat, Voice of a Moderate. I have a question in reference to the 2016 elections. Right now, Syria is so far off the radar as far as the American public goes. I mean, it's, of course, ISIS and other issues, also the lack of trust with the um, people that we would be supporting. My question is, is it possible to delay any action until after 2016? The only opportunity for the no-fly zone, I believe, and according to some data I read, was after the chemical weapons issue two years ago. And when we didn't take that direction then, I can't even see a no-fly zone being even suggested on the Capitol until after the elections. So any comments you have would be great. Thank you. Perhaps a brief reaction from, from all three of you, because I think there's a lot moving um, in the region. The Saudi operation, uh, Saudi-led operation in Yemen, Operation Decisive Storm, now um, renamed Operation Restoring Hope. Um, there's a sense in, in in the Gulf that the Saudis are um, making, you know, the, the Arab world and the Sunnis realize that they can have more uh, uh, effect, more impact on the ground, and they are starting to think about what they can do in Syria. So perhaps there was a window, a window missed in. 2013, but there is some suggestion also from what I read uh, this morning from the Safan Group, Richard, that 
things are, are afoot in, in, in the region, also because of the impending deadline of the nuclear deal. So would you each want to address this, this briefly and tell us how this fits possibly into the American public, what they want and what, what's coming up with the presidential election? Yeah, well, I, I, being the only non-American on the panel, maybe I can <laughs> speak first. But, but I, I think that foreign policy will be an issue in the 2016 election in the general sort of complaint that the Obama administration has not provided leadership or not maintained the strength of American leadership that the electorate might want to see. I'm not sure that it'll be specific towards Syria and Iraq so much as maybe towards the Iran deal and stuff like that. But what will raise Syria, Iraq, I think, is if there are more um, small-scale terrorist attacks which, which can be traced back to the influence of the Islamic State or even Al-Qaeda generally. Uh, that may then turn this sort of debate about foreign policy and leadership into a debate about national security. Faisal? Yeah, no, I should add, I'm also not an American. So. No, that's oh, that's yeah. right. I mean, we're all here take, discussing take American that, foreign policy. <laughs> take that as you will, yeah. <laughs> Neither uh, am I. <laughs> look, uh, I think uh, really uh, whatever happens between now and 2016, the world gets a vote. I think things are going to happen in Syria that are going to put pressure on the United States government to act. Whether that is a growing rise of groups that we can't accept, uh, or actually other actors in the region taking the lead over this and producing a result that we may or may not like. I don't exactly see, and call me naive, but I don't exactly see why there being an election in 2016 would necessarily stop an administration in its second term from doing one or the other thing, as long as they didn't think it would be catastrophic in which case they're never going to do it anyway. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not an expert on that calculus in particular. You'll have to excuse me. But, and, and, and Robert, the, tell us a little bit about the, the, the ebb and flow of, of, of conflicts and you know, the, the international uh, you know, players and, and how they view the situation. Conflicts, I mean, I grew up in Lebanon during, during the Civil War. There were moments when the conflict just sort of stalled and there was a stalemate and then something moves somewhere you know, quite far off. There's a sort of butterfly um, effect. So are, are we seeing something unfold right now that could lead to some kind of movement or, or, or not? I don't think we're there yet. Um, and this is a very hard, brutal war of attrition. And I don't think it's going to change next week or next month, maybe not even that much this year. Um, in answer to your question, um, I have not seen the administration telegraph that it is thinking of significant changes in its policy. And so taking it at its word that way, I, I don't know that it will. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it's not signaling that. What's interesting to me is that Clearly, regional states against Assad, uh, including Turkey and Saudi Arabia, um, have significantly increased their material assistance to the armed opposition inside Syria. And I heard that last week when I was in Jordan from Syrian fighters. What that means if that trend continues, and I see no sign that it would not continue, is that American influence and American leverage in the Syrian conflict will diminish steadily um, over the months ahead. It'll become something where we are less and less relevant, even though, as Richard said, and I mean, we are 
the United States and, and our voice is heard. But in a war, in the end, fighters on the ground matter the most. And so um, until we can at least set up a structure where there's regional states, including Iran, talking to each other, and, and we absolutely have to talk to Iran, we absolutely do, uh, I don't see that the administration is going to be able to influence this very much. A question in the front. You had a question? Yeah. Yes. Yes, um, Carol Castiel, uh, Current Affairs at the Voice of America. Thank you all for your insights. I would like Ambassador Ford uh, actually to go into detail, if you can, about what is the status of the regime, the Bashar al-Assad regime. If it isn't indeed on its back foot, what are the reasons and to what extent is Iran helping, continuing to help through its proxy Hezbollah and other actors or not? What, what is the status of Iran's uh, cooperation at this point? And then, of course, to what Richard Barrett said about uh, the Assad regime, you know, being a legitimate government, uh, we, we just saw recently the Security Council, many members presumably were in tears over another uh, uh, chlorine attack on its own civilians. So I think we are dealing with a rogue regime, um, notwithstanding it, you know, it is so-called legitimate. But uh, I think we need to acknowledge the, the root of the problem here. You know, Assad turned on its own people, a peaceful uprising the you know, Syria, Free Syria Army, rather, there were defectors trying to defend themselves, and then there were coordinating committees. Uh, I would like to know, um, you know, what do you think the administration is prepared or not prepared to do at this point? Back in 2012, President Obama had many advisors, General, uh, General Petraeus, um, Defense uh, Secretary Panetta, and of course, Hillary Clinton advising in 2012 to step up our help to the peaceful opposition, weapons, no boots on the ground, contrary to what the administration said. This did not happen. What do you think uh, has changed or would change with the very logical uh, recommendations by Faisal Ithani? Thank you. So a question on, on Iran for, for Robert and, and one about the legal uh, requirements to, uh, to, to Richard. Robert? Carol, I think Iran is prolonging the civil war. I think we would have been able to get to a negotiation a long time ago if the Iranians had not provided so much assistance, which enabled hardliners inside the Syrian regime to reject any negotiation. Um, I was very struck last week in Jordan when I was talking to these fighters um, on the southern front, the First Army. Um, they said they had taken a number of Afghan Shia prisoners. They said they didn't even speak Arabic. Um, they apparently they live in Iran and they were mobilized to, by the Iranians and sent over to Syria to fight. And I asked them, I said, you know, was it ideological or why did they do it? And they, they said what the Afghan prisoners they had told them is it was just they were paid, they needed money. So um, the Iranians, by mobilizing Shia fighters, Hezbollah, now even Afghans, uh, has helped the regime compensate for an increasingly difficult manpower shortage. But over time, it's not enough. The regime is still, little by little, its military situation is eroding. And I, I was very struck when it lost the provincial capital in northwest Syria called Idlib. Uh, that attack was telegraphed well in advance by the Syrian opposition. Not intentionally, but everybody knew it was coming. A lot of chatter about it. And the regime had no reinforcements to send. 
The regime right now, today, is fighting a defensive battle south of that provincial capital. It's trying to hold a supply line open to its last city in Idlib province. Um, but it's a long, tenuous supply line. It's a very difficult situation for them. Meanwhile, the economy inside Damascus, or inside Syria, is getting worse. The exchange rate now is over 300 Syrian pounds to the dollar, and it was 50 when I was there at the American Embassy. When we closed the American Embassy in February 2012, the exchange rate was about 51 to the dollar, and it's now over 300. And what that's doing is it's squeezing uh, the Syrian middle class um, in a way that we actually saw, it's very sad, uh, we saw Iraqis squeezed during the last years of the Saddam Hussein regime exactly the same way. It's, it's very hard. It's, Syrian suffering in this is just horrible. It's just horrible. So, but the regime's situation, little by little, is degrading, and it's, I think, more than any other country, it's Iran that's keeping them in the game and, and refusing to negotiate seriously. Richard, do you want to address the question about the, the, the legal justification? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the evidence to the Security Council you know, on the chlorine attacks was, was truly horrific, as indeed with the evidence provided by Cesar or Caesar, whatever name you would give him, about the deaths of uh, prisoners held in regime prisons. Uh, if you remember, he was a photographer who recorded all that. Um, and in the United Nations, there is this concept of responsibility to protect, that, that governments have responsibility to protect their citizens, and if they don't fulfill that responsibility, then the international community can take action. But it's incredibly difficult to see at what point the international community might agree to take that action. And despite the enormous humanitarian consequences of what's going on in Syria, despite the desperate uh, crimes committed by the Assad regime and no doubt by other parties, um, I think people would say, well, well, why Syria before many of the other dreadful regimes around the world, which are also treating their people extremely badly? Uh, well, you know, death is death, and, and however you're, you're killing your citizens, um, then, um, you know, with the chlorine, I mean, I, th I think it was a great achievement, albeit that it, that it was born in rather an odd way, it was a great achievement to take away the chemical weapons from, from Syria. And that was very effective by the OPCW, I think. It was a very good model to, to have. Chlorine, of course, is very difficult because chlorine is such a widespread dual-use uh, uh, chemical. But yes, I think that, that theoretically there should be the possibility of drawing some red lines about the use of chlorine-filled barrel bombs and stuff like that. But it's really, I, I still argue that it's incredibly difficult to say, okay, this is one side of the red line and this is the other side of the red line. It's a political decision rather than a sort of quantitative decision. Mm, thank you, Richard. We have two questions in the front here. We'll, we'll group them. We have time for about two or three maybe. Hamad, um, um, and then the, the gentleman just behind him. Thank you. Mohammed Ghanim, Syrian American Council. I have a question for uh, Ambassador Ford. Welcome to town. Welcome back to town. Um, so you know that some free Syrian army groups like Al-Hazm movement um, got 16 bullets per fighter per month. I was in Aleppo the summer of 2012 after some parts of Aleppo were taken from the regime. I met with a, a rebel leader, Ab, Colonel Abjabar Agedi, and he also said that they used to get about 15 bu bullets per fighter per uh, every couple of months from Qatar. He said that he spoke with you, he asked you for assistance, and you said, with Kalashnikovs, you took, uh, you've taken about 40% of Aleppo. Uh, what would you do if you had more? 
So does this seem to you like assistance that is meant to help the rebels uh, win? Or, I mean, do you not see any calibration here? Is it just conspiracy theory? Thank Let's you. Take the question just behind as well, and then we can get to that. Hello. Uh, congratulations, Faisal, for your uh, report. I'm Dia from Syria. I'm from Homs. Uh, my question, I have two questions, one for Faisal and the other for uh, Mr. Ambassador. The first one, after asking uh, uh, the free or nationalist group you mentioned, they have been asking to arm for weapons like more than four years, all the international community, without any response. So do you think that is there any logic way to convince them that the international community like want to work with them in order to overthrow Assad? Even you mentioned that in the short term, the uh, target is ISIS and extremist group, not Assad. This is my question. Mr. Ambassador, you mentioned about the opposition. You, uh, I think, and I have heard, especially in Gonan Hotel, uh, you had uh, a rule in, with the uh, Syrian opposition and coalition. Uh, and uh, like uh, I was surprised to, to, uh, to hear from you clearly about we have lack of representat uh, representation, uh, no minority, and no Syrian as well. You know how the political opposition was formed, like outside Syria, those guys has no vision, no strategy, and nothing to do with Syria. So how can we, f we get a solution without some of those guys like Riyadh Hijab, others guys who worked for the government and they still working for the government for, but for Syria, not for Assad? This is my question. Thank you. Um, Robert, the easy questions uh, for you <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> on doling out uh, uh, limited quantities of, of, of ammunition to, to, to the rebels and the question about how representative uh, was the opposition that you that you were dealing with, and, and perhaps uh, you know Faisal's report here, uh, you know, uh, fills that that gap where you create an alternative on the ground rather than just talking to oppositions uh, uh, outside. Uh, with respect to the material assistance we provided, and yeah, Mohammed, that was a loaded question. That's not fair. Uh, it obviously wasn't enough. And that's, that's all I really need to say. Um, it obviously wasn't enough. And the fact that groups that we had supported, such as Hazem being overrun so easily uh, last winter, is a measure of the effectiveness of our program. And I think the administration needs to do an assessment of whether or not the fault was the lack of supply or problems intrinsic to the groups that we were providing assistance to, and whether or not more assistance would have helped that, those problems. I mean, for sure, the groups we have helped have problems, for sure. Is the reason for their problems essentially the lack of resources, or is it something else, whether something that be more internal. bad leadership or corruption or whatever it is? Um, but I think that kind of assessment has to be done. My sense is, as an outsider now, is that it is more a question of material resource. And I would simply point uh, to the successes on the ground now that uh, these groups, just in the last six weeks, have gotten a much better logistics supply. Um, 
uh, they've made gains on the ground. So I, I don't know that they've changed their leadership that much. But they've it, gotten more help with forming the leadership, not just the material support. Well, I don't know that they're getting more outside help to do that. They may be getting some encouragement. But I think the, the fighting groups themselves understand the problems of needing to coordinate amongst each other. Um, with respect to the, the political opposition and its representation, um, I do not believe that the political opposition sitting in Istanbul now can speak for the people on the ground in Syria. Um, and I think it will be really important, therefore, and this is something that was in Faisal Latani's report that I really liked, um, it will be really important to not only re-engage, but substantially re-engage with armed groups inside Syria and with civilian organizations inside Syria. Let me give you the easiest, easiest, easiest example I can. Provincial capital of Idlib, a city of about 150,000 maybe. It's depopulated largely because of the regime bombing, but some people will come back. It is now setting up a civilian council to manage its municipal affairs. I sincerely hope the United States and other countries tries to help that civilian council to manage the affairs under terrifically difficult circumstances. There was a horrible barrel bomb attack just outside of it a few days ago that killed over 60 people. Um, that experiment of self-government in Idlib under these trying circumstances, it must succeed if we are to try to move towards a political deal in Syria over the medium term. And so not just helping armed opposition, but also helping civilians. And I think you, you referenced that in your report. So if you want to pick up where Robert left off in terms of, you know, um, this, this assistance the U.S. Uh, could give that ties in uh, with a question that was asked about, uh, you know, how do you convince uh, the, the, the nationalist rebels uh, on, on the ground about what America's uh, intentions really are? Is it about only fighting ISIS? Is it about bringing down the regime? Is it about finding uh, a, a negotiated solution? In essence, the question is, how do you restore um, the, the trust? And, 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 I'll, and I'll leave you to conclude, to conclude the event with these thoughts. True. Uh, very simply, uh, through uh, action, the words are fine and the words are correct, uh, but uh, through actually doing some of the things we've been talking on this table about, through a sustained, logical, coherent, and well-explained outreach to, national, to nationalist groups and nationalist civilian organizations as well on the ground inside Syria. How do I communicate to Syrians that, they, that the United States wants to overthrow the regime? It doesn't, so I'm not going to communicate it. Uh, what it does want to do is compel a solution to the crisis itself, and that's the goal I share. My, as much as I would like to see Assad, various bad things happen to him, uh, for, the, for the better better interest of the Syrian people more broadly, that's probably not going to solve their problem. They need some sort of governing structure and balance of power and pact within the various factions in the country that would allow them to live with a sense of normalcy. And probably Assad can't be, not probably, definitely Assad can't be part of that. But that's different than saying the goal is overthrowing the regime. Um, I'm going to ask Richard and, and, and Robert to give us a, a final concluding thought, if you have it, or a recommendation or, or a prediction about what this year might bring when it comes to the, the Syria conflict. I wouldn't dare give a prediction. 
But I think that, uh, you know, Robert raised a very important point about the civilian council in Idlib. And I think that what outsiders can do is to try and support people inside Syria who share a common understanding of what it means to be Syrian. You know, something that, that provides a base on which to build. And if there's a civilian council in Idlib that could theoretically survive a recapture of Idlib by the Syrian government, for example, that would be amazing. I mean, that would really would be progress. So I think that I couldn't agree with him more that we need to focus on these other structures, non-military structures within Syria that reflect Syrianism. Robert, a concluding thought? I would just like to thank you for your report. Thank you. Um, I think it's great that the administration mouths a strategy of wanting a political solution and uh, understanding, at least on a theoretical level, that Syria needs a new government to find a long-term solution to the extremist problem in Syria. Your report, Faisal, I think, has given us some useful recommendations on tactics, not an ex you know, a comprehensive list, but you have put in a lot of stuff about tactics that would activate that strategy. And so I sincerely hope that the administration takes a look at it and um, reflects upon it. <laughs> And if you haven't read uh, another report that was also put out by the Center at the Atlantic Council, Fred Hoff last week uh, put out a report as well, which was very interesting. I think you are addressing the sort of the short-term tactics that feeds into what uh, Fred's recommendations are for the more uh, long-term. This was a very interesting discussion, a very interesting report. As, as Robert says, um, it does give everybody uh, food for thought. Um, just before I, I thank our panelists, I want to just... Um, uh, give you a little housekeeping note. There's a VIP visit at the council that will uh, take place soon after this event. So I've been asked to kindly uh, request that you not uh, linger too much uh, in, in the lobby to make way for, for that event. But I thank you all for coming, for joining this very interesting conversation. And I want to thank Faisal for this very interesting report, which uh, I hope you will read in depth. We've, um, you have received copies. Uh, Robert Ford as well, and Richard Barrett, thank you very much for coming to talk to us and uh, bringing about your perspectives to this very lively conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.